0: Hi friends, welcome back. My guest today is Professor Adam Hart, and we are talking about how unfit for purpose the human species is for the world that we find ourselves in now. You see, our species has been around for far longer than the modern world, and this leads to imbalances between our evolutionary heritage and the environment that we find ourselves in. So today, expect to learn how obesity might be an evolutionary adaptation gone awry, how the flight and fight happens in the workplace, the misalignment of technology with our brains, the evolutionary basis for violence, and much more. Adam is a presenter for BBC as well, so his delivery today is just so cool. Um, I'm really, really impressed by him, and the book is really fun. So if you're into this evolutionary biology stuff, uh, I would very much suggest that you go and pick it up. In other news, it's Patreon. Patreon coming this Monday! I'm so, so excited to get this live. If you love the show and you want to help support us make more of the content that you love, then please consider joining the Patreon. Dean has a shopping list for camera and lighting upgrades that is literally longer than his leg, so I think it might take quite a while for us to finish that off, but oh my god, once we finally complete all the upgrades that we want for this show It is going to sound and look absolutely world-class. The plan is to make Modern Wisdom the prettiest-looking podcast, the most overtly, obscenely cinematic visual experience that we can muster. So uh, it's just going to be awesome. I'm mega, mega excited, as you can hear, and the opportunity to release uh, the new recap series and to involve you guys in voting for upcoming guests and topics and all this sort of stuff is hopeful going to repay you for your support and um, help to level this show up to where it needs to be. The guests that we get on, the volume, the consistency. Consistency? Yeah, the consistency. Like I was thinking about a cake there. Yeah, the consistency of guests that we get at the volume, at the pace. You know, I, I really do think this show can become one of the best in Europe. And as we continue to level up the quality, we're only going to grow faster and faster. So thank you to everyone who is going to become a part of that. On Monday. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, thousand companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. But for now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Adam Hart. Are you feeling fit for purpose this evening?
1: (laughs) To be honest, at the moment, I'm not sure I'm feeling fit for purpose at any given point, but I'll give it a go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. So uh, today we're talking about human evolution and what happens when it collides with the modern world, the imbalance between sort of who we are and where we exist, right? Right
1: yeah exactly that, that that's what the book is is fundamentally about basically we 're an evolved animal and we're pretty, we're pretty decent right we're a pretty good evolved animal we we fit very well to the world and we've achieved global dominance as a consequence but we have created now a modern world environment that, that seems to clash and we 've got lots of problems in the modern world that we can tra- trace back to our evolutionary heritage to greater or lesser extent. Sometimes it's quite a playful thesis. Sometimes it works quite nicely. But we can see those evolutionary echoes in the modern world. So that's the the kind of overall idea. I get
0: it. So how much of an imbalance is there between humans and the modern world? Because sometimes I think that I'm doing pretty all right. And then sometimes I feel a bit like an alien.
1: Yeah, I think... I think we have to understand that we have changed the world in such a massive and dramatic way. In some cases, over the last decade. I mean, if you think about it, we're having a conversation here over Skype. Um, I've got my Twitter feed open. We can talk about things going viral and social media, stress and fofo and all that sort of stuff. That this would have been meaningless even 10 years ago. And that, and that's just in one small aspect of our life. If if we look across across the piece, I mean, COVID-19 has exposed, of course, how globally um, connected we all are. You know, we got used to the idea of going on flights and moving around. The world now is a very different place from what it was a generation before. And of course, if we look back over the last 100 years or so, it's, it's a very different place. So we've, we've always changed our environment. That's, that's a, almost a, a feature of humanity. But the changes that we produce now and the environment that many of us now live in and what we call the modern world is a very, very different world from well, even a century ago, but actually the world in which we, we evolved. You know, If we look at our sort of post-agricultural revolution ancestors 10,000 years ago and we compare it to our lives now, it's a very, very different sort of setup, although, of course, many aspects of it are also the same. So it's, it, it, it is a different world that we live in, and I think we have to accept that.
0: Yeah, I suppose the first thing to realize here is how slow evolution works and how quick and effective we are at changing our environment.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, if, if you look back, so the biggest, probably the biggest thing that happened to us was that we worked out how to grow food. And obviously, that's a pretty decent um, thing to have worked out. Uh, it saves us a lot of time, allows us to, to expand our technology and innovation because we're no longer foraging for food and we have a different sort of societal setup. But that came with problems so actually when we developed agriculture there were quite a lot of health problems um our dentition we suffered from dental caries for for the first time extensively for example um because of the the way that our skulls were changing and our dentitions were changing so we did have evolutionary change and that slowly but surely helped us to accommodate the changes that were happening. But we're talking over thousands of years. It wasn't as if it wasn't like the Internet revolution where within five years everybody's online. And that's not how the agricultural revolution worked. It was over a long period of time. Um, We also have an evolutionary change in, in order to, for example, digest milk so um, those of us that have lactase persistence and are able to drink raw milk that is an evolutionary adaptation to to dairying and to and to farming so we see that happening quite slowly and of course that's that's what environmental changes are, are often like um, that, are, that are non-human induced. But but recently we we've seen environmental changes that are just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you you look across the world at the moment at at mega cities, for example, super cities. We have literally tens of millions of people living on top of each other in incredibly high density environments. So the number of people on the planet is, is enormous compared to what it was. The technological shifts that have happened, you know, these these are all environmental changes. You know, there are changes to our, our environment that affect how we behave and affect how we live. And really the change over the last, let's call it the last generation. You know, we, we, we can argue about whether it's 20 years or 30 years or 50 years. Actually, it doesn't really matter when we look at it in evolutionary terms because it, it, it's too slow for us to, to evolve, to take account of it. We have to have social sort of accommodation for all these environmental changes, and it's incredibly rapid and dramatic.
0: <laughs> it really is. I was in Dubai a couple of years ago with my dad, and I couldn't believe just how recent that city was. Yeah, like I mean, that was that was desert. De- desert
1: not that long ago. Bro, really not a that desert. long ago. A small fishing village, I think, wasn't it originally?
0: Insane. You know? um, so obviously there's kind of two two schools of thought, I suppose, or broadly two schools that I see. One of them being the um, left-leaning person who might look at the modern world and look at uh, inequities and inequalities and stuff like that and talk about it being bad. But then someone like Steven Pinker, who would look rationally at all of the ways with like life expectancy and modern medicine and things like that, that are effective. So there's kind of this balancing board in terms of how people see the world. But I guess evolution and humans and our ability to adapt, is that's not going to change at all
1: no um we're, we're not going to sort of evolve our way out of some of the problems <laughs> that we that, that, that we face right now i mean I, I was thinking about this actually earlier today um because social media was was being discussed on the radio so i was driving and and, and you know i talk about social media in in the book but the, the way that we have we, we we have evolved an amazing capacity for for social behavior and that's almost a definitional part of our species and the ability for us to communicate in language enhances that sociality and you sort of get this runaway selection where one enhances the other which increases the benefits of the other our intelligence you know we see this across the animal kingdom more social animals tend to have larger brains you know all of these things are intermixed and interlinked but and we're incredibly good at it right we're incredibly good at living together cooperating working together achieving incredible things face to face and we know the rules and most of us are able to you know read the room and work out sort of emotional engagements with people and we have an emotional intelligence that lets us navigate that environment. But now we go online and we sort of try to use those same rules, but it's a completely different environment that we have to operate in. And people can say, oh, well, that's kind of a trivial example, but 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 people commit suicide as a consequence of interactions online. You know, that is the ultimate... Um, you know lack of fitness right you to, to, to take your own life as a consequence of something you know that is really a very serious thing. It affects people 's lives it affects how people interact with it with each other and their, their mental health and it 's because we we don 't know the rules now we 've had thousands tens of thousands of years of evolution to help us. Build up the cognitive processes that that enable us to navigate our social world in in, in the real world we, we we've had about 10 years to to work out the rules and of course and here's the thing right as, as soon as we work out the rules the social environment changes because suddenly there's a the new form so yeah people i think I, I sort of got the impression people were starting to get a handle on how to use facebook but then twitter came up on the sort of back back ropes and suddenly everyone was getting quite involved with that and, and that is a very different vibe to it you know people say things to me on twitter they would never say to my face Mm. you know you would never get up in someone's face like that and and say the sorts of things that, that people will say on there you know you just wouldn't do that mm. um we've had tens of thousands of years of social evolution that stop you from doing that because you're likely to get punched in the face but 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 that doesn't happen online so i think we start to learn the rules and then something new comes along we get instagram coming in when suddenly we we get this highly filtered version of yeah instagram kind of an interesting one isn't it, it, it it's quite a, a it has a high potential for for um, mental health damage, I think, because of our tendency to sort of compare and, and contrast with other people's lives. Um, that That is something that we are just coming to terms with. As soon as we do that, of course, well, TikTok's around now. So that's the new big thing, isn't it? And we'll get used to that. And then the, the, the goalposts will move again. So e- even when we're able to get a handle on this new environment, we shift the environment and it's just happening all the time. And I think that that is really the, the key point. We are, we are changing what we do and the way that we interact and, and the environment that we're in in all kinds of axes in ways that that really are are, don't just outstrip evolution i mean they outstrip evolution because they're happening sub-generationally but but they outstrip even our ability to sit down and think about it (laughs) even our ability to just get a basic handle on it and i think i think we have to sit back sometimes and, and and realize just how remarkable we are and that we can do these things. And, you know, you and I are having a conversation over the internet. This would have been a ridiculous thing to consider a generation ago. But at the same time, we, we, we aren't always up with the rules of engagement. And I think that's, that's something that we really need to, to sort out.
0: Yeah. Uh, there's an arms race going on at the moment, and there's a number of different levels that it's operating on. So technology and new modes of being will always lead. Then, probably a little bit after that, individuals might start to adapt. Then some social norms might arise around how groups should adapt within that. Then, lagging up behind that, the policymakers finally get their act together and catch on to the fact that we need GDPR uh, online compliance, or we need to police um, what YouTube's policy is able to do, or what Twitter's policy is able to do, whatever it might be. And then... Bringing up the rear a couple of hundred uh, generations after that, evolution is like the old, slow, decrepit dog that's (laughs) like at the end of the leash, like 50 yards behind you, just slowly creeping up behind. And we've got all of these, and you're totally right, like the arms race that's going on between the pace that we're able to move at as a society, as, as a world and everything else, you know, those layers and layers there, several different sort of filtering points at which we're not able to keep up. So, I mean, is evolution right now, is human evolution kind of a little bit pointless? Because by the time that you evolve, the environment that you've evolved to adapt to will have changed.
1: Yes, and of course, many of the things we're talking about um, you know evolution can only happen if there's a genetic basis for the trait that you're referring to and if that genetic basis affects survival and ultimately reproduction right that's your fundamental aspects of it and and yeah many of the features that that plague us in in modern life might have some echoes in evolution but they're not necessarily affecting they're, they're not necessarily um, affecting our reproduction if you like so so our inability to handle social media may well have an evolutionary sort of echo in terms of of the types of social groups that we've evolved to handle um, and the size of those social groups and those sorts of interactions right that that may well be the mismatch that we see in the modern world but our inability to handle that doesn't necessarily affect our our ability to reproduce it doesn't become a dominant feature it's not if you like open to to natural selection um, in the modern world so so evolution isn't going to get us out of that problem even though there may actually be um, some genetic component to to it, right? Our ability to handle larger groups could well be a, a genetic component. If we accept that there is some evolutionary echo to the way that we think about these things, then there's going to be some variation in population. And some people, of course, can handle things better than others. And actually, you know, like I talk about in the book, um, for, for, for some people, social media isn't a problem at all. And for other people, it's a very big problem. And there's no reason to assume that there may not be some underlying genetic variants there it's going to be very complex and it's going to be far from straightforward but there could be something there but is that ever going to translate into a sort of meaningful selection environment so that people that people that that do well on twitter suddenly have more children actually that's (laughs) and they pass on that ability to do well on twitter you know that 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 sort of evolutionary scenario seems a little unlikely but the, the biggest problem with it is that is that um, by even even if that were the case, of course, by the time that's able to act in a generation or so, um, you know the problems the problems gone away because we've come up with a new way of interacting. Yeah. Um, I've just I've just been joined by um, by a almost two year old who um, should be down. Da- Hello, darling. Who he should be downstairs? So if I can if I can just pause very quickly, I'll have, absolute, him, I'll, ha- pause. I'll have him removed. Hang on a minute.
0: Absolutely fine. Yeah, we can that? send the child catches you got in. That? That's it. The child catchers are coming. The two-year-olds being no. I've
1: off. I've 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 sent for the the child catch. It's all right. <laughs>
0: That's totally fine. Two-year-old has arrived. There we
1: go. All right, fella.
0: Yeah. <laughs> See you later on. Just you was your co-host for there a brief for a brief while there.
1: Yeah. Well, and and he illustrates. Oh, could you close the door, Lloyd? Yes, sorry about that. So yeah, um, you know, that, that, that's that's the big problem with with all of these things is even if there was enough variation, enough of it was genetic in the background, and it made some meaningful sense, and people that did well in certain things left more offspring than than others. By the time by the time that happens, the, the you know the, the environment's changed. We've changed the environment, of course. You know, there may be more subtle effects with that. I mean, you know. We, we talked earlier about social media causing problems one of those problems is things like stress and you know we can see some genetic basis and differences in the way that people handle stress but equally that's a balance because some people handle it in different ways this warrior warrior kind of idea which which may be have strengths and weaknesses at different points. So all of, it, all of it becomes quite difficult to see a way to evolve our way out of trouble. But certainly evolution has provided some of the, the background that sort of got us into trouble in the first place.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so weird the way that our evolutionary heritage rears its head when these new things happen, right? So you bring in a new technology and you're like, well, I wonder how the human makeup is going to respond to this uh, surplus of food. I wonder how this human makeup is going to respond to this—that hypernormal stimuli uh, coming from your mobile phone and dopamine hits throughout the day and all these sorts of things—and it's like uh, it's it's crazy, man. It's so it's so fascinating. This is why I've been loving reading your book and uh, some of Robert Wright's work and uh, Rob Henderson. We recently had him on talking about uh, evolution and dating, uh, and it, it's really really cool. So uh, you you mentioned there about group size. Actually, I wanted to ask: How does Dunbar's number relate to social media?
1: Yeah, well, this is a really interesting one um, because it's – the odd thing I found when researching this idea was that you can find quite a lot of people who will say, well, Dunbar's number is very controversial. And you'll kind of read around and people will come up with different numbers. So, the idea of the Dunbar number is it's, it's the number of people that are in your social group that you can feel comfortable with. And, and Robin Dunbar, I think, defined it as this idea of, of who you could go up to in a bar and join for a drink without feeling embarrassed about it. And, and the idea is that that number maxes out at around 150, um, but that there are layers within that. So, there tends to be smaller numbers, sort of around five or so, that are you know, your very intimate close friends and then a slightly wider circle and then it expands out. And the idea is that when you go beyond the Dunbar number, that that, that you, you struggle with those social groups and that social groups tend to form naturally in human, both in human history, actually, if we look back and in modern sort of human relationships into these kind of groups of that number. And, and and I saw lots of people go, well, that's not true. And you'll find this other number. And they say, well, no, it's 350. Mm-hmm. And there's mm-hmm. someone else that, that came up with research. And said, well, that's no, 1,200. And and you've got all these sort of people arguing the details. But what I noticed never really came out was the, the idea that there was a limit. And, in fact, the upper limit seems to be down to our ability to remember faces. We <laughs> At some point, I had, you know, we can't cope with any more. And so when you follow all this through, this idea of the Dunbar number, however which way you dice it, you end up with, people deciding that yeah well there is a limit actually we're just not totally sure you know maybe the number's this maybe the number's that but there is a limit and that limit seems to always be in the order of hundreds or you know perhaps up to a thousand Mm. well when you look at people's online social networks they are much larger in many cases um, and in many cases those online social networks can be quite active as well so it's not just a case of you've got say ten thousand twitter followers but you only interact with two or three of them actually you may have interactions with a large number of them in different shifting patterns so you can end up actually with very large networks and then when you intercept that i mean this is the other thing right that's our virtual world in one platform but of course people have lots of different platforms with different interactions on and on top of all of that, and this is something that I wasn't able to really find that much research on, we have our real world networks as well. So we, we might be maxing out or getting close to the Dunbar number or whatever number we decide in the real world. And then we lump on a whole load of different social media platforms with all of these things as well. And and it seems that, that, that people, particularly people who are quite ruminative um, and perhaps prone to um, overthinking things maybe, uh, have a real issue when when the social network of the online world um you know mixes with their with their real world and, and it, it can cause real problems but equally for for some people it can be a real big benefit and there is this slightly odd idea that you know we know friendships are good and healthy and we know that friendship networks and strong friendships are good for mental health but having very very large networks online for some people can be very bad and you know i mean my my, my advice for that I, I, I didn't write a self-help book, but if I was to, my, my advice for these online social networks is is learn how to mute and ignore and block and and learn how to manage them to get what you want out of them and i think that's that's something i've learned but i think it's also something that we don't tend to think of when we join a social network online and we expand beyond our dunbar number range if you like mm. we often don't think well why, why am i doing this right what, what what is the point you know i see people on twitter and facebook going i'm taking a break from this now it's all too much and you think well what 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 were you doing? You know what what was your mm-hmm. reason for joining that network, and what are you trying to get out of it? Um, we're not used to doing that because we don't think of friendship groups in that way in the real world, right? We don't we don't always look at someone and go, right, what am I going to get out of you? You know, <laughs> what's my what's my what's my angle here in becoming usually, you know a friend of yours, right? That's not really what we do.
0: Not that costly, you know, like yeah, and also there's not a if you stop, if you just stop speaking to someone that happen you don't you don't remove yourself entirely from the social environment you don't go right that's it i, I just fancy a little bit of time in monk mode for the next yes. four months all of you yeah. my entire social circle all of you are our souls and yeah. i can't take you anymore yeah that that doesn't happen it is interesting i mean there's a i got a bunch of doorways open in my mind one of them being play stupid games win stupid prizes which is a quote from naval ravikant where he asks what is the prize for winning the game that you are playing at at the moment and one of those for a lot of people will be checking their phone every 30 minutes like what yeah. is the prize for winning that and this is something i i am the epitome of someone who spent too much time on their on their phone. So i'm a club promoter by trade i've sent and received millions of messages on whatsapp millions so I am very, very accustomed to what it feels like to have a tech addiction. And yeah. I've had to set myself such hard and fast rules in a desperate attempt to try and wrangle a technology which is far, far, far outgunning me. This race to the bottom of the brain stem is I am just a, a pawn and there is billions of dollars in the smartest... Uh, designers on the planet behind every button press. You know, anyone that's spent a bit of time looking at Tristan Harris's stuff from the Centre for Humane Research and he's... We've spoken a lot on this show about tech addiction. We're a big fan, big advocate of phone reduction on this show. Um, but... Yeah, having a separate device for social media has been a big help for me. Uh, Not allowing my phone into certain rooms of the house, so if I want to use my Mm -hmm. phone, I've got to go into the kitchen. Not sleeping with my my phone beside my bed has been a huge difference, having a hard digital sunset on a night. And it's like, even this, like, think about what I'm saying. I'm having to construct this bizarre world within the world with weird little fences and rules and stuff in a desperate attempt to stop using... A device that I had to pay a grand and a half for.
1: Yeah, and this, this, none of that would have made sense to anyone ten years ago. You know, none of what you've said, and yet every single thing that you've just said, I thought, yep, now that's actually a good idea. Mm, yep, not a bad plan. You, you're right, and and the devices that we hold in our hands now, they're they're like you know, people that design fruit machines know this, and and one of the problems of gambling um, addiction or, or trouble d- problem gambling, as it's sort of m- more broadly known, is that particularly with slot machine gambling it's the unexpected win associated with bright lights and noises that that form this sort of perfect storm to reward those pathways in our brain that that make us associate this with a good thing right this is excellent we must carry on yeah and and that Mm -hmm. of course is at the root of 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 addiction of addictive behaviors when we think of of drugs and things more more broadly and and having a device that is attractive to hold it's a pleasing it's an aesthetically pleasing thing that makes us feel good it rewards our reward path because we're getting messages and we're getting likes right we're getting confirmation of what we what we want affirmation of what we are it reinforces that and all of those things that we're talking about they're they're psychological structures in our brain that have evolved to keep us alive and to breed essentially you know the reward pathway is basically there to eat and have sex you know that's that's effectively what is there to reward and and now we i talk about the hijack hypothesis in in the book in when it when it comes to, to to substances and drugs but of course we can see the same sort of thing with with devices and And you're right, we're having to come up with this whole sphere and this whole realm of engagement (laughs) and and management options in order to manage this technology that our huge brains have led us devise and innovate which is incredible when you think about it but of course in there we also have these evolved mechanisms that are perfect for um, for making us addicted to it and it's it is it's something that we we need to want and i look at my kids you know they 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 love technology and you know you, you have to you have to come up with rules and i see lots of parents with rules for their kids right no screens none, none blah, blah blah they don't have those rules for themselves you know and and, and and i'm just as bad i'm just as bad as anyone here you know as, as anyone listening i i i i I need I, I, I had to put the um uh the kind of Twitter launch icon. I, I've hidden it on sort of screens about five kind of sweeps away from my home screen and stuff. I don't keep it loaded up, so I actually have to go onto it and mm. make a physical move because if it's in the background tweaking away at notifications, you know, I know that I know I won't be able to help gotta, myself. Got <laughs> got
0: gotta gotta add that effortful friction in, man. Dopamine is a hell of a drug and variable schedule rewards are a hell of a delivery system. So. Yes. You know we are we're we're outgunned in that department. So um can you tell us about the hygiene problem? I love this.
1: Yeah, so um I did I mean I guess one of the one of the issues of the modern world, um, and we can certainly see it in um, lots of aspects of the modern world, is is infl- is inflammatory diseases, and actually um, inflammation in general is now implicated in a whole load of different things. And this is when our immune system sort of overreacts to what's going on. It's actually one of the um, the sort of cytokine storms that people are talking about, um, causing deaths in COVID nineteen. Is, is in effect, it's an immune over response, right? And we can see it in much less dramatic things, but nonetheless very life changing. And life um, reducing kind of things like asthma, for example, um, allergies, you know, um, not just sort of peanut allergies and sort of potentially serious or fatal allergies, but, but but sort of lesser allergies as well. And we can find all of these things. And, and one of the very seductive ideas about this is the it was became known as the hygiene hypothesis which is effectively saying we are all living such clean lifestyles now and we use so many domestic cleaning products and everything that that our immune systems never get chance to learn friend from foe right we never get the chance to build up the idea in our bodies that well these bacteria are good these bacteria are bad and we end up with this immune system that if you like hasn't been to school properly and it's kind of uh, not learn to respond properly. And, and that's a really interesting idea because it's very seductive. You see it absolutely everywhere. It's repeated in the popular media, particularly, you know, jump on the hygiene hypothesis. But when you actually look back through the history of it as a scientific idea and the publishing of it, it, it was never about home hygiene in that sense. It was actually the original idea was looking at, um, looking at the incidence of things like asthma, for example, and it looked at household effects. And the biggest household effect was actually the size of the family that you're in um, because right. it gave I, you more. It gives work? you well, it gives you more interactions, so if you have more children, basically those children have more interactions with children, more um very close interactions, more opportunities basically to ing- ingest bacteria uh, and so on well, because and you're
0: you- dirty and they're dirty and you've and got, together everybody dirty yeah.
1: and and of course, um if you look at our modern lifestyle, we tend to have much less exposure to to outside um, we live more inside lives than, than we certainly than we evolved to live and so taken together those ideas actually have some merit and, and they went on to form what's become known as the old friends hypothesis which is the idea that we co-evolved really with a whole suite of of harmless organisms you know microorganisms bacteria nematode worms and all sorts of other things and that by being exposed to these very young in in, in life you know our adaptive immune system is able to go okay cool your friend your friend ah uh, you know shit we better sort you out you know, you're different, right? So the, that's the idea of the, the sort of the, the old friend's hypothesis. The hygiene hypothesis, of course, then you know, developed greatly because of this idea that we all clean our houses more than we do. Mm-hmm. And actually, I mean, looking back at certainly at my grandmothers um i am looking around my house right now i can honestly say that there's absolutely no way that my house is cleaner than theirs um you know and, and in fact people did lots of studies of this and they looked at the use of cleaning products and all this sort of stuff and and it, and it really transpires that it's not it's not this fact that we're all so damn clean these days and you know back in the day we all ate mud and and you know mars bars were the size of house bricks it's not it's not this sort of uh uh kind of great great change it's actually down to the way we live and and the, the modern you know if you like the modern western lifestyle the idea that we are inside much more as children we tend to have less interaction with other children you know we're a crashing species almost you know lots of children in in sort of um ancestral societies certainly children would have played together much more than they do now um you would have had family groups mixing together much more than they often do family size would have tended to have been larger there would have been uh, potentially more contact with with animals and livestock than we have now and so all of these changes to our lifestyle can have an influence on on the way our immune systems learn um, and we can see similar sorts of effects um, in in lots of different places around the world. I mean, there was a really nice natural experiment where a group of uh, an ethnic group in in northern Finland, um, I say a nice natural experiment, nice and in inverted commas from a scientific perspective, um, uh, an ethnic group got divided by border effectively between Finland and Russia and very very rapidly the 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 Russian group were living a sort of more traditional lifestyle for them and a more um, rustic lifestyle I guess you would call it with association with animals and so on and the group in Finland lived were living a, a what we would describe as a modern western lifestyle and and very very quickly they were able to see the differences in those two effectively genetically identical populations they hadn't had time to diverge but they were the only difference between them now was the environment they were in and they were able to follow through the 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 sort of the fact that the 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 group that was in this modern western sort of setting had more lifestyle related kind of allergies and so on so it's a it's a really interesting idea it it is a tricky one and it's it's the sort of thing that's very difficult to do the type of controlled experiments you know sort of Mm -hmm. the 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 gold standard kind of medical trial that you would like to do because of the ethical implications of it but but certainly the correlative evidence is is, is strongly points towards this lifestyle effect changing and resulting in these allergies
0: the question that we need to know do i clean my house or not
1: Adam. Well, absolutely. And, and yes, you should, because th- this is the other thing that developed, of course. I mean, I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm going to take little Toby out or whatever and force feed him, you know, mud. I mean, if, so, you push, so, if you
0: push a toddler into the ground, it's good for their health,
1: <laughs> right? It's good for their This was the idea. I and mean, people, well, I won't clean my house. Well, well of course, actually, you, you know, we, we should. Hygiene, and as we're seeing right now, hand hygiene, particularly, is an incredibly important thing. The fact is that we yeah being clean is good right we we no longer suffer from many of the infectious diseases that we would we can clean wounds we all of these things are wonderful if and if you handle things like chicken for example you know with campylobacter being quite rife in some of these things yeah you know, god's sake wash your hands right wash your children's hands Adam, don't, Adam, don't, I don't had, get into the idea that, that, that all these things are good but
0: i had salmonella 18 months ago
1: Oof, right
0: and wouldn't advise is, it
1: no and and actually and something i mean I, I wrote a book about five years ago um which looked at us the complex relationship with bacteria and one of the great surprises with that was to and i don't remember the figures offhand but was to see how many people in this country die from food poisoning from salmonella listeriosis and so on it was quite shocking and in fact there was a um there was a food poisoning um outbreak if i remember rightly up around the northeastern um, you know uh five or ten years ago that, that i mentioned in that book you know these things happen and that you're right they're they are not fun right so um, definitely definitely have some basic hygiene awful
0: but- awful way to spend half the month of october and most of the month of november yeah uh, it, it doesn't stop man it was it yeah. was it was savage anyway i won't i won't go into too much graphic detail and uh, so you looked at stress too what did you find out there
1: yeah, I think well, stress is brilliant. Stress is actually what started um, the book. Um, so I was I was looking for for another book to write, and and one of the things that came out from the book on bacteria, which was talking about sort of allergies and so on, I got looking at inflammation, and then started reading around, and ended up finding that the stress in the modern world is this big long, you know, chronic stress is this long term killer, and that we don't you know we still don't understand that much about it so i started thinking about stress as a topic and then realized that it could expand more so you know the base the basic story behind stress is that stress is an absolute lifesaver um stress is fundamentally this fight or flight response right something terrible happens we need to fix it right now we, we can't wait for a sort of homeostasis to take care of it it's, it's not you know right now we need to do something we need to jack ourselves up and get ready for it and, and so we get this fabulous hormonal sort of ballet through our body that releases all these hormones that that that. Elevate our heartbeat—you know—all of that feeling that we're all familiar with. Elevate the heartbeat, elevate blood pressure, divert blood away from where it's needed to—or to, where it's not needed to where it's needed. All of these responses that we associate with that—and—and and that's a lifesaver. It's—and it, it's certainly saved. I'm—I'm I'm guessing that nobody hasn't been saved at some point from serious injury and potentially actually death um, as a consequence of that response. And, oh, and i w- sure walking out every- in the
0: traffic, accidentally dropping yeah. something on your hand that's hot. You know, all
1: of those things. Right? That is—that is a life lifesaver and every one of our ancestors would have enjoyed that you know this sort of stress thankful chain all the way back and in fact um the biochemistry underlying this this isn't a human thing you can go back through the primates through the mammals reptiles even some invertebrates have have this sort of system in place so this is a really deeply evolved thing and it saves our lives the problem is that if you release all of these hormones all the time, they, they have a a harmful effect. It's called an allostatic load. They have, they have this harmful effect on our body system, right? Um, it's a great thing because you need it right now, but you can't be living with this all the time. And what we find in the modern world for some people, and potentially actually, I think for, I think for many of us, um, you know, some people deal with it better than others, but many of us are are subject to an almost constant drip feed of stress. Instead of having these major stressful events that save your life because of Bears just jumped out from behind a bush. You know, we have uh, a groaning email inbox, three phone calls to take care of. Um, we mentioned it earlier: you know, social media alerts and notifications, and you know, thirty-five different WhatsApp threads, half of which you're, you're unsure why you're even on anymore. All of these things gone, and missed buses. And then, of course, we have got financial woes. We're able to read the news and and take on the woes of everyone else. Uh, you know, some earthquake at two thousand miles away, in a place you'd never heard of, is suddenly becomes something to do with you, you know, <laughs> and 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 all of these things build up, and the the really. Sort of bad thing about it is we get this sort of drip drip of stress, but then that has immediate effects. Um, it can cause headaches and pain, which of course can cause you more worry and concern. Um, it can cause sleeplessness, which is a major source of additional stress because because then suddenly you're an insomniac, and we end up with this almost maelstrom of very w- what we would think of. I think is a very modern day woe a very modern day problem and it's coming at us from all sides and and of course we haven't lived this life for long enough for us to really have a very solid handle on what it might and how that might affect us um 70 and 80 year olds right now did not grow up in the same world that teenagers are growing up in with the same stresses they had their own stresses and different things as well um some of which would have been greater individually but did they have such a large stress landscape as, as we live now that 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 is something which we are discovering all the time but but what we do know is that that more and more evidence is gathering up that this constant chronic stress micro stress that we're under it is having an effect on our on our health and well-being and it's something that evolution isn't going to help us with evolution has given us this wonderful tool <laughs> and it's allowed some people to deal with it in different ways and it's allowed some people to 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 have a variation in how they do it but it's given us this wonderful mechanism for keeping us alive but but it's up to us i think to to regulate our lives in the modern environment and perhaps change our environment so that we change that stress landscape because you know we we can't live like this and what's interesting is if you look at you know you look at well actually nhs advice and and things it sounds more kind of glastonbury than harley street (laughs) half the time now um most of the advice i have to say is is quite unhelpful it's things I mean, effectively it's, it sort of says pull yourself together calm down and you know go go for a walk or something and actually that you know that might be very good advice but it's not necessarily the advice that someone that's deeply stressed needs to hear um, so we still need to work out the best language for that but what's interesting is you look at kind of retreats for example or spas and it almost feels like the more they strip out of the modern world the more you pay you know the more spartan your existence is <laughs> but the the more it's going to the more the ah, more it's going to it, ah, cost you right and <laughs> I, and I, mean, I i stayed in a hotel uh in africa actually a while ago that had this spa and they had a big sign you know leave your mobile phone here they had a locker for it and everything it was very much stripping away aspects of our modern life which we would consider to be luxurious and they are and safe and they are right we live a very safe luxurious life really but stripping those aspects away and giving us some refuge from them is how we're now trying to de-stress our lives and that's I, i guess over the last couple of months um you know with with sort of lockdown one of the the narratives that i've seen coming out and this is probably down to the sort of echo chamber that i'm in in social media but but i've seen people very much say how important the natural world has been to them how important it is for them to now go out for a walk every day for them to go and sit in their garden and just watch the bees or you know get their binoculars out and, and have a bird list and to and they, they're saying that that is how they're dealing with it and in effect what well, they're, they're de-stressing by removing the modern world slowing down taking it easy and i think that is something that we definitely need to do because the lives that we're living now are luxurious, safe, privileged, and yet (laughs) cause us all kinds of of stressful woes. And it feels like something that we... i think we can get on top of that you know i think we just need to identify what those stresses are understand that we've got this evolutionary background that isn't helping us and work out how to get those things to 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 operate together and i think that's something that that possibly actually the last few months might have helped some people to come to terms with i know it's helped me actually because the whole work-life balance is put into stark relief when you're you know, working at home constantly and you've got kids around you you have to manage those things and and you know now I've, i i find myself going i mean i mentioned earlier i find myself going outside a lot more you know i'm a I, i'm a biologist by profession i'm a i'm a keen naturalist i'm a and I, I i'm a natural historian by sort of persuasion but i don't get that much chance to do that this year is the first year that i've seen skylarks flying for years um that i've been out here in cuckoos because, Normally, you know, I would be at work and then at home and then sort, you know, probably on being social media around and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, So being forced to balance those things has actually helped me immensely. But of course, for for some people, it's also been you know another stress. <laughs> well, I, I I understand and I appreciate
0: the people that have had stresses and stuff during lockdown. But the reduction of stimulation, the reduction of novelty, the reduction of opportunity for experience, as far as I'm concerned, has re-centred many people, including myself's, attention onto simpler pleasures. So I was mentioning this on a podcast the other week, that over the last two and a half months, three months or whatever it's been, since I've been in lockdown, I have been able to do my morning walk and watch the trees go from bare branches to getting ready to leaf to buds to flowers and i know the i know which trees went first i have like the shape of them like some of them i've given like weird pet names to and obviously this is just all part of the odd psychosis that's going on inside of my mind but like i i i I took notice of my flower the clematis i've got in my garden i'm like i've never i've lived in this house for five years like i've never taken notice of stuff like that so i i do agree that um Hopefully, we've been able to reset, dial back that hypernormal stimuli, dial back mm. the the um, constant, it's Joanne's barbecue this weekend, and we've got to hurry off because we've got to go to our parents down in, in, in Surrey on Saturday and blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I really do hope that that is something that people take away, the fact that they can have more simple, more easy and enjoyable experiences uh and hopefully kind of reconnect themselves with that grander vastness that nature does because it makes you feel small right it reminds you that your problems aren't that big so the the two key takeaways we've got so far that I've I've got from this the well, three key takeaways uh, number one sleep with your phone outside of your bedroom number two if you've got a child you worry about getting ill uh shove its face in some mud number three <laughs> um if you want to really enjoy your life then uh loincloth mud hut uh, out in the middle of somewhere, completely barren and stark, um, and and just live live out there for like a week, and you'll come back, and you're just going to be fully actualized and and full of zen. So those those are the three takeaways that I've got <laughs> so far. Uh, up next, are we evolved to be violent?
1: Yes. Now this was this was a chapter which I found particularly interesting um, to to come at from from a zoological perspective, um, because. I think you can find lots of people that will suggest that that humans are the only people, they're the only species uh, that will that, that kills its own kind. And, and as a biologist, I, I know that that's i mean that's twaddle right <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's absolutely incorrect I, i've studied um leaf cutting ants and honeybees for example in some depth and both of those highly social species right that we look at in terms of harmony i mean but bees are virtually honeybees are virtually synonymous with harmonious living well actually um you know the, the queen when she emerges will kill her sister queens um they, they, they will eat each other's what a eggs bitch. I, yeah I, I used to study these ants called dinoponera quadriceps huge things. They're actually the biggest ants in the world. They live in Brazil. they live in relatively small colonies. About 10 or 15% of the ants in a colony are involved in all these antagonistic in- interactions between each other. They're sisters, but it doesn't make any difference to them because they might get the chance to sort of become the breeder in the colony. And they're, they're, they're trying to kill each other. Um, and in fact, what, what someone did fairly recently was to do what's called a phylogenetic analysis. So they looked across the broad sweep of mammals, and they looked at their relationships between the different groups, the evolutionary relationships between the different groups, and the incidence of inter-individual um, death. But, but basically, members of the same species conspecifics killing each other, um, fatal conflict, if you like. And what they found was that forty percent of mammal species had solid evidence of that happening. Forty percent of them, um, and their suggestion was that actually they would have found it in more except you know we haven't studied most of these things basically the rule seems to be that if they've been studied for any length of time it turns out that they probably are killing each other at one point or another (laughs)
0: and
1: and here's the brilliant thing you look at they they illustrated this beautiful sort of circle of all the species going around so you can sort of see them all in one place And, and there's a really massive kind of lump of violent interactions and you look at it it's the primates the group that we come from are unusually violent for mammals even though you can find this violence throughout, and then you sort of look further in, and you know the apes are kind of a bit more violent still, and and so we have come from a a violent lineage. You've got a
0: perfect heritage, yeah. There, we we,
1: we, we we do have peoples. that heritage for it, and you can come up with all sorts of quite plausible evolutionary scenarios as to why you know, violence can be at times a, a great problem solver um, you know if, if, if particularly for example if you're a group living animal and you come into conflict with other groups for example which would have been at some point an issue but also to resolve conflicts within groups so you know violence can definitely be an advantage at times and it can be a lifesaver um, particularly in sort of in sort of conflict times so yeah you know, I think we can overdo our sort of violent history but over the course of our of our evolution there are times when violence would have been a definite advantage and then if you you look at us a physical unit, we're, we're pretty handy right we're, we're we're a decent size um we're quite strong we've we've got long limbs which provide perfect kind of uh levers and perfect sort of uh, gives you very good reach you can swing a fist very very fast we've got feet knees elbows we've got heads and skulls particularly the front of them. our skull is quite tough we're, we're yeah we've got some pretty Pretty decent sort of bits about us physically that that allow us to inflict um, harm onto others. A couple so of
0: inbuilt weapons here and there.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, sure. You know, we don't have. Teeth and claws that are particularly affected, but nonetheless we're not we're not badly put together. There was I, I came across this fabulous um, uh, sort of argument by by a biologist who who sort of uh, tried to put forward the argument that the fist and the way that the fist is 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 made and and buttressed and sort of the the architecture of the human hand and everything was was to do with with a fist and that we were sort of pre adapted, um, you know the fist were well, not pre adapted. The fist was actually an adaptation for fighting. And he'd also put forward the idea that the the human male face and differences in bone structure between males and females. It was basically a sort of punch proof face. That was his kind of um, to overall view. the way
0: that the impact comes in and a thicker yeah. neck that will be able to withstand
1: e- Exactly that. So so th- those ideas, it must be said, were, were met with some fairly robust um, criticism in, mm. in the literature, but nonetheless, actually, some people also said, well, you know, maybe there's something in it. Um, so there's there's sort of an idea that, that we might have that there might be adaptations. I'm not really sure I'd buy into that, but certainly as a, as a physical specimen, we, we, yeah, we have, we have some fairly useful attributes for violence of course we then also got a pretty decent brain that's both innovative so we're pretty good at using weapons and tools and and can plan ahead so we can really start to start to bring all these things together so it doesn't seem necessarily surprising that we are are violent I guess one of the surprises is that we're not more violent and of course then we see evolution coming in as well and there's lots of um, evidence and ideas about sort of how uh, we have evolved mental mechanisms and and neural mechanisms for for reigning ourselves back um emotions for example things like shame and um some of the emotional sort of side of things are hypothesized by some to be to be ways to reduce our violent tendencies so it was quite an interesting in and out for me this sort of thing and and what's really interesting as well is that you can find perfectly good well put forward theses by people that say we are you know more violent now than we were very, very learned theses that say, no, we're actually much less violent than we were. Learned theses that say, no, we're no more violent than we were before. Um, it, it's, it's almost as though we we have not really got a firm grip on it. But what I did find was that there is evidence for genetic components to violence. And when people have looked at, at violence and tried to – it's always very tricky, of course, to separate nature from nurture in human mm. um, studies. But but it does seem that that violence in the broader sense of the term and what we might – you know subsume within that there there may be some genetic component to it as well and what that suggests is that it of course has been under the the influence of evolution so evolution has certainly had a role to play of course in the modern world and in our, our modern way of thinking you know we have a very different view on that and just because evolution you know, just because we've come from an unusually violent sort of phylogenetic origin and just because we have all this ability to be able to do this and just because at some point in the past there may have been selection for it, you know, that is not an excuse for violence because equally we've had selection and mechanisms that prevent us from acting through on that. And, of course, what our, our secret is, you know, our secret, I guess, our ultimate goal is to work out why it is and, and what triggers there are in, in some people that make some people much more violent. Than others and and that's that's really a hope I think of lots of people looking at the evolutionary history of of this sort of things to try and get some sort of handle on on how we might if you like cure or treat um, violence, but, think, but equally. So,
0: uh, th- th- there's a, there's an argument there. There'll be a number of people that would hear you say or hear uh, researchers say that we're looking at ways to cure violence. And they would think they're trying to neuter the population. They're trying to make us helpless and weak and unindependent. And they want, they want this sort of uh, utopia. And again, what we're talking about the misalignment between human makeup and current environment, the fact that the fact that we have this flinch response now where the vast, vast, vast majority of things don't yeah. require a flip. We don't need to be scared of a cold shower. And yet, every morning when I go and have a cold shower, I shut yep. myself just before I go in because I know what it's <laughs> going to be like. And I know that I'm fine. Or, for instance, when I'm doing breath work, let's say that I'm doing some quite challenging uh, holotrophic breath work, and uh, I, I'm scared that I'm choking and I can feel the gasp response coming. It's like... I know I'm not choking. I'm in complete control. It's me that's holding my breath. And yet we have all of these misaligned concerns and warning signs that go off around us. And um, there's going to have to be a line where we begin to align the way that we are, the way that we operate uh, to the environment more effectively effectively but there must be an overton window to that where you actually push it so far that you essentially no longer become human
1: yes and and i think yeah we we need to be we need to be careful um when we develop these sorts of theses too far, um, because actually, of course, things are always a bit more complicated. You know, we're, we're not going to find a gene, for example. You know, there's not a gene for violence, right? And there's not going to be a simplistic way of curing it. But I think we can get some insights into what are clear problems in the world today. And and violence can be, in in, in the broad, um, is, is clearly a problem. Um, domestic violence is a huge issue and a huge problem violence towards um, uh, children is clearly a problem violence towards towards everyone you know un unjustified violence let, 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 and let's put that in inverted commas and sort of and, and sort of park it but just just let, let, let's assume that in some cases violent responses are justified or desirable yep. um, to defend yourself for example most most of the violence in the world is is not defensive it is not in that sense and we see the escalation of violence across the world you know resulting in th- in, in Manifest atrocities up to the level of of genocide, um, clearly there is a problem, and I mean, even
0: even understanding
1: it 's going to help us in some way a much more
0: personal level um, because people it, when we get to these big abstractions and we start to actually talk about the, the genocides and everyone can go well i 'm not a part of a genocide it 's like okay everyone 's been on a night out i 've stood on the front door of over a thousand nightclubs, right, and Ooh. I have seen hundreds and hundreds of fights yeah so many guys that are posturing that are looking to not lose face in a group of drunk people who don't even know who they are and won't remember what happened the next day and you think this is i'm watching it thinking this is uh, an evolutionary adaptation to not wanting to drop down the pecking order within your tribe gone so haywire it is unbelievable.
1: It's a pure evolutionary. If if we were, if we were sort of alien biologists dropping onto Earth and we saw that classic drunken nightclub brawl. Oh, come we, on we, then, mate. Come on then. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's posturing, right? So, so you get display. So, in our case, it's often vocal display. So, people will start adopting a way of speaking which they wouldn't normally adopt. They're shouting. They're they're swearing at each other and they're, they're name calling. Right? That is no different from red deer bellowing at each other. Right? It's trying to work out who's the biggest. And people might back down at that point. And if they don't, they start displaying. And you see it in deer, right? They'll start walking parallel to each other. They're sizing each other up basically to work <laughs> out if it's worth it. You see that in men, right? They'll start putting their arms out. Come on, in, Come on, then. They're trying to make themselves look bigger. It is pure, pure animal behavior at that point, and that is that is has an evolutionary origin. It's display. First of all, the threat displays. Then we get physical displays. And then if it escalates, of course, it goes into, into a fight. And you're right. It's to do with status. It's to do with um, access to females. It's to do with access to resources. Of course, in the modern world, those things are slightly subverted and become somewhat bent and twisted. But the basic essence of it is the same. And then, of course, people will start fighting. And what they're generally doing, I mean, if you watch if if you watch people having you know as, as you've done much more than I have, I'm sure um, the sort of fighting they're doing is either a fairly weird imitation of the type of fighting that they see on television and films, which we are immersed in constantly, yeah. which of course doesn't doesn't really work because it's there to look good, or it is it is. Brutal. All the fancy kicks in the world aren't going to be as good as stomping on someone's head, and that's what you actually see in the real world. And that—that is where that—you know—that is where people get killed in these ridiculous threat displays. We have a problem when that's happening, right?
0: For the the most part, what I see—and that's a really interesting insight I've never thought of before— for the most part, I see fights which are grander and less effective than they need to be. I've never yeah. in all the fights I've watched seen someone bite another person. No. And yet if you were trying to pull a murderer off your child, yeah. you would be it would be you'd be in the eyes, you'd be in the throat, but it's yep. not that sort of fighting. Is this almost like uh baroque it's
1: slightly ritualized style
0: yeah this kind of weird dramatized like a uh, kayfabe wwe bullshit um so look i've got a couple more questions but i want to do a quick fire round for you now Adam. Go on, i'm then. gonna quick fire round quick fire round is going to be try and give us a brief evolutionary explanation for different emotions
1: <laughs> i'll try see what you can do okay so first up pride Pride. Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Pride. Um, I suppose, I mean, this is pure, this is the worst type Mm -hmm. of armchair adaptionism, but I guess... um, pride is almost a sort of self-rewarding thing isn't it it's sort of an affirmatory kind of self-rewarding i I wouldn't be at all surprised if feelings of pride if you were to mri someone that's done something that's prideful um that it it doesn't affect that reward pathway in some way because if you've done something that makes you feel proud you maybe you might want to end up doing it again or or seek that emotional out Uh, again i wonder if that's i I don't know next
0: next one envy
1: well, I suppose envy basically comes down to resource, re- resource management, and territory, and so on, isn't it? Um, you're envious of things which will give you more status and more reproductive power. Ultimately, um, I can imagine. I, I've I've got two blackbirds that that live. And the males are constantly barracking each other. One one is on the street opposite, and one's on my roof, and they have both got pretty decent territories. But you can see each of them eyeing up the other one. I'm guessing that envy in humans is probably um, a more sophisticated and more intellectualised version of that. Um, we see something we want that will give us some status, some resource that we need, and and envy eats away at people. It it, it motivates. So it's probably linked in some way to those motivational pathways that. Gets us to you know, get something that we perceive to be of value to us. Got you. So that, that's uh, my armchair
0: adaptationism for that. I, I like it. Uh, two more. So loneliness.
1: Well, loneliness is um, is is an interesting one, isn't it? That, that's something that, ironically, perhaps in the modern world of interconnectedness, we we find ourselves less connected, and we see loneliness. Um, loneliness is an extremely unpleasant thing to experience um whether that's a pathological reaction to the situation so if you like outside of the realm of, of it, it's not an evolved response it's simply a uh, a symptom a disease response or whether there is some evolved response to it because it's such an unpleasant way of feeling it stimulates us i i don't know but i, I guess one of the things that we see with people that are chronically lonely is <laughs> it doesn't necessarily drive people towards seeking out humans in fact if anything it tends to lead to further isolation mm-hmm. and further loneliness. So I wonder whether I, lo, loneliness might actually be be a sort of um, uh, a, a symptom, almost a, a disease, if you like, a symptom of, of something rather than a an evolved emotional uh, response. Yeah, I, but, I, but, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm guessing there'll be there'll be people listening to this that know a lot worry, more about I, the evolution of emotion than me. Going, they, they shouting at the screen, fuck Adam, you yeah. can
0: comment please, in, in please the comments please. below and correct us throughout this whole thing. I've told yeah, it, I've, I've, I've said like valuable. five times about shoving a child's face in the mud. It's fine. Um, <laughs> uh, final one, right? I've asked this question to a number of different people, and this is a, this is the most difficult one. Have you seen Interstellar? the film i haven't yet no okay so in interstellar there's this short period short sequence where the uh, they're talking about the evolution of human emotions and they're trying to justify or work out why we still love people that have died
1: so grief yeah i suppose well it's it's different from grief isn't it grief is, is almost that separation uh sort of thing um The pursuit, the continuation of love of people that have died. How is that
0: fitness enhancing? You know.
1: I guess. I guess, in a sense, uh, maybe we want we want that to be us some sense perhaps that's one of those things that's gone beyond simple fitness enhancement and is a product of this, this is this is such a, a squirrely mm-hmm. and 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 uh and a, a weaselly response but perhaps that's one of the products of the complexity of our brain that simply emerged from the the background of all those neurological connections yeah maybe maybe, maybe that's just a um uh a spandrel if you like an evolutionary kind of loads of other things that evolve for different reasons and as a consequence of them we get these interconnections that lead to uh, something that we can't explain that that is that is yeah. a, a no a, I, there I like you go, that. that's my idea i like i like
0: <laughs> the fact that you've got this kind of like haywire um add-on the, the kind of like a bug in the system uh so you could think again this is a, i've thought about that question loads and this is the first time you're eliciting a lot of new thoughts here which is great um uh, what you could have is your brain is unable to work out the fact that your feelings for someone, the love that you had for someone, that they're no longer there. Then, the, it's actual uh, a um, denial of death almost somewhere. Which- Back, back inside mm. of you. I don't know why that would be evolutionary. fit. well,
1: and um, I guess, I guess, a, a denial of death is probably a very good thing, right? If, if, if you refuse to believe that death is there, and you, well, no, actually, accepting that death is there is much better, isn't it? Because you know how bad death would be for your fitness, so you ruthlessly try to avoid it. So actually, kind of uh, ig- ignoring death, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm it's, gonna hey, out that out. let yourself ponder. <laughs> have, a, have a little ponder on that. Well, and when yeah, you watch, it's, a, it's an interesting one.
0: When you watch Interstellar. You'll know the exact bit that I was talking about, so um my final question what's what what happens next? We said at the very beginning of this conversation that human evolution is kind of a bit moot now, or at least for the time being for as as long as the environment changes fast as hell, evolution is kind of just spinning its wheels is what what's that mean as we go forward
1: i i think I think what it means is is that we it's kind of like we we need to sort of grow up a little bit, don't we? We've we've reached this point now in 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 our civilization, and particularly over the last few few decades and the last generation or two, we've we've really reached a very critical point, and, and and perhaps even a tipping point in the way that we that we view the world and, and and see the world. And I think I think we need to embrace the fact that we are incredible creatures, right? We are amazing we can control our environment to a ridiculous degree we can explore space we can smash atoms we can do all of those things and too often i think we we sit back and say oh but you know we're we're rubbish and we blah 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 and like aren't we awful and we we can't run as fast as a cheetah or whatever no we're, we're incredible we're the fastest strongest most intelligent creature on this planet we should embrace that and we should use that in a much more effective fashion and i think to do that we're going to have to accept the fact that we are animals that we have these kind of evolutionary echoes that influence things both consciously subconsciously and also within our bodies and the way we respond to things we almost have to embrace all of that and and much d- m- understand ourselves in a much better way I think if we're going to move forward because you're right evolution is not going to get us out of this Um, we're going to get us out of this but for us to do that we have to really deeply tank on what we are And we are flesh and blood animals that have been subject to evolution, but we're also something incredible because we've got in our heads the most complex structure that we know of in the universe that's capable of innovation that that we can't yet imagine (laughs) and imagination that we we can't quite fathom. So I think we just need to bring all these components together. But underpinning all that, and this was really the big surprise to me, is is the fact that we're not very good at thinking about the future. (laughs) Um, Evolution hasn't equipped us for that. Evolution doesn't care what's going to happen in three, generation to time. It cares what happens now, right? We have evolved and our heuristics and our brain have evolved as kind of here and now things. And we devalue us, actually. We think of ourselves as different people in the future. Future us is, is sort of treated as the same as everyone else, but we can stop that. We can actually do experiments that show that if you just tweak people a little bit and prepare them and say, listen... You're going to need to make a decision for future you, but future you is going to be you. yeah. It's going to have the same hopes and fears and emotions and everything. If you prime people in that way, they treat future them better than they treated future them without that priming. And I think we need to learn those little lessons that that let us take our evolutionary heritage and sort of turn it on its head and make it into a strength, you know, the sort of judo approach of, mm-hmm. of understanding our enemy. And I, Flip I think it that, against itself. And I think that's that's where we're going to need to go. I think we're going to need to be – much more understanding about what we are both in a sort of philosophical sense but also in a biological and sort of very real flesh and blood sense and and understand that heritage but also understand what it means for us right now and 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 yeah and perhaps perhaps then we we have a, we have some hope because yeah we are in every axis really it's very hard to find anyone arguing against a point that we seem to be right now in history at quite an important point in terms of human population the way we're treating the planet our environmental issues the social issues you mentioned earlier ideas of social inequality and everything you know it very much feels like we're at that we're at that important point and I think we're going to need to understand our our, our past um, and our present in order to, to move on into that future, which of course we need to get a better understanding of as well. Oh, so it's, it's, tri- it's tricky times, but it's exciting times as well. You know, there's there's hope, I think. There
0: is so much complexity to hold in that, you know, and mm. I, I genuinely do hope that the more abstract more uh long-term rational side of us that allows us to transcend the terrible social norms and the awful evolutionary heritage and all of the the fears and the worries and the and the the crap that we've managed to the baggage that has been given to us by our ancestors in an environment that we're no longer fit to be in um but it it requires a lot of social change like if if evolution isn't going to do it then it has to be a combination of wisdom acquisition by the individual, social cohesion by small and local groups, by a bureaucratic and political change, by people in power who actually understand every layer below that, and then a global movement toward understanding that we are one species, one planet, one shot at this, you know, We didn't even start talking about existential risk and stuff like that, but that's a whole new rabbit hole for us to go down. But, you know, the uh, mm. Fermi,
1: Fermi, Fermi paradox actually seems to start making more and more sense. We, yeah, we, we, we need to. I, I think we've tended to think of globalisation a lot of the times as where it means I can get cheap trainers from Indonesia and fly to Australia. We, 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 you're absolutely right. We, we need to realise that actually we are, we are globalised now. We can see ourselves in the round literally if you know from space we can see ourselves we, we need to embrace that we we need to embrace what we are as, as, a, as a species much more i think and and realize our problems and and you're right it's going to happen at all levels but it needs to happen at all levels it needs to be individual it needs to be local it needs to be national but it needs to be global as well and and we can start to see movements moving in that that direction but one thing one thing that we can be sure of right in human endeavor we usually end up going further than we thought we would, but it usually takes a bit more time. You know, you look back to the '50s and people were predicting we were living on the moon and 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 whatever by the 1970s, but but in fact they didn't predict half of the things that we've managed to do. Um, they just got the timing wrong. You know, so we really, yeah. I, I think we it's going to take us a bit longer. This is this is not going to be a shift that's going to happen overnight, but hopefully we're going to be heading in the right direction.
0: I love it. Adam, uh, Unfit for Purpose, When Human Evolution Collides with the Modern World will be linked in the show notes below. Uh, have you got any other websites, any other stuff you want to plug?
1: Uh, no, just that one for now. Um, there is a Radio 4 program coming out that's, that's not linked to this, actually, but it's quite interesting um, and sort of arose out of some of the ideas where we look at humans as prey. Um, so we're looking at that, at um, how, how we... Um, are eaten around the world actually by various animals and how serious that can be in certain areas. But also we look back to our evolutionary history and look at the influence of not man the hunter, which is the sort of glamorous way that we, we used to think of it, but man the hunted and the importance of that environment on our evolution. So um, some links there as well. What's, and what's that called? That program is going to be called On the Menu, and it's um, out at the end of June, and that's on BBC Radio 4.
0: Amazing. That sounds awesome. I've, I've never seen any ancestral historical analysis of what happened of how we would have acted as prey, the the ways that we would have hidden from animals. You're totally right. We get this sort of hyper romantic view of the berry picking while the wife's at home and then the the killing the saber toothed tiger and all this sort of stuff. You don't get the how did we cower in caves narrative very much so that that sounds absolutely fascinating on the menu um bbc radio 4 I, i'm excited man but look thank you so much unfit for Purpose is sick it's an awesome book everyone that has been listening if you've enjoyed this if you've got an interest in evolutionary theory and and uh, all of the stuff that we've gone through today then head to the show notes below and grab it feel free i'll also link uh professor hart's twitter below so feel free to hassle him on there and, and tell him what you think he got wrong or what you think he got right <laughs> Uh, Adam, thank you so much for your time, man.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.